Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 548 for the 25th of June, 2017. This week, because of some special needs, I've developed an appreciation for Google Drive and some of the Google Apps, Sheets in particular. We haven't seen a lot of zero-day exploits recently, but they're still a serious threat, and those who develop them can expect big financial rewards. In short circuits, what does Amazon want with Whole Foods? What Amazon did to bookstores won't work in the fresh food market, but expect disruption. If you haven't yet contacted the Federal Communications Commission to argue in favor of net neutrality, now would be a really good time to do so. In spare parts, only on the website, Sony says it has sold more than 60 million PlayStation units worldwide. And this week I have an update on my older daughter's recent medical emergency, along with a lot of gratitude for the Ohio State University Medical Center. In the past month or so, I've developed a new respect for Google Drive and the office-like applications, Sheets, Docs, and Slides. Two events drove my reevaluation. First, the ability to store full-resolution images from my Google Project Fi smartphone, and then, following my older daughter's liver transplant in mid-May, the need to maintain post-transplant information where members of the family could access it easily. Let's start with the usage more people will be familiar with and more likely to use, photo storage. When you sign up for Google Drive, you get a certain amount of space and you must pay for more if you need it. The photos you store on Google Drive do count against that storage, of course. The monthly fee is small if you want to store full-resolution images on Google Drive, but images are not counted if you have a Pixel phone. Google offers free unlimited cloud storage in its Photos app, but uploaded images are compressed. Upload the original high-res images and it will count against your account limit. But if you have a Pixel phone, any image you capture with the camera will be automatically uploaded and stored without any effect on your storage limit. Google is clearly doing this to entice people to spend a not insignificant amount of money to buy a Pixel, so the free storage may not be permanent. If it's not, that's okay, because I store images on my computer, but being able to move them over from the Google Drive makes the process quick and easy. Under normal circumstances, I would use a real camera, not a smartphone camera, but one essential aphorism for photographers is this. The best camera in the world is the one that you have with you. My real cameras were at home when Elizabeth went into surgery and for the next week or so, but I had my phone. The ability to create inobtrusively images at several critical points along the way make it possible for her and all of us to understand what happened. Photographs are only part of the story, though. The need to store information about Elizabeth's vital statistics and other information in a way that's accessible to family members and medical personnel makes Google Drive and the various apps a good choice. Documents can be stored so that they are private, available only to someone who has login credentials, or to anyone who has a specific URL. 
Transplant patients need to take an enormous variety of prescription medications for the remainder of their lives. Placing the information about these prescriptions in an easily accessible location was one of the first critical needs that I wanted to resolve. Storing a PDF document gave us all access to the latest information, and in the event of an emergency, that information could be accessed by medical professionals. She also needs to record her vital statistics three times a day, blood pressure, heart rate, weight. Later, as the recovery continues, she'll need to record even more information. This is also data that needs to be available to medical professionals in an emergency. Ohio State University provides a comprehensive manual for transplant patients, and one of the pages is a form for recording that information. Initially, we just made copies of the page. Then Elizabeth decided to create an Excel spreadsheet. I took that one step further by uploading the spreadsheet to Google Sheets so that she can update it in real time. She can also do the updates from her phone, not just a computer. I had also been recording my own blood pressure and heart rate daily, recording the information in Evernote, which provided only a table-like representation. And as I described a few weeks ago, Evernote tables display properly only on a device with a screen the same size as the one the table was created on. Besides displaying properly regardless of the device, information recorded on Google Sheets can be graphed, and either the numbers or the graph can be made available to anyone who requires them. No need for an Evernote account. So for this purpose, Google Sheets was the perfect solution. Obviously, it is not the perfect solution for all needs, but it's good to know that it's available for those times when it's appropriate. Occasionally, I mention a new and usually nasty zero-day exploit that Microsoft or security firm is warning about. You're told that you should update something or patch something or change your password. Maybe you're wondering why and what that's all about. Crooks refer to them as zero-day exploits. They just all run together, the number zero followed by day, zero-day. Zero-day exploits, there's a robust market for them on the dark web. Ones that can target large operations, government agencies, or banks can be sold for tens of thousands of dollars. The zero refers to the fact that the software flaw has not yet been disclosed publicly. Because it's essentially an unknown, the software engineers who wrote the application that's being attacked have no time to create patches or find ways to mitigate the threat. The longer a bug has been known, the more likely it is that the software developers found a way to block the problem and a patch has been pushed out to users, so time is critical. A new vulnerability is valuable. One that's been known for 30 days is less so. And a flaw that was discovered a year ago will be even less valuable. There are always users who forget to update their operating system software and applications, and those who feel that it's unimportant to do so. Those folks are still targets even for those older problems. On day zero, the crooks have essentially a 100% chance that their exploit will work on any computer they can reach. The only defense against zero-day exploits is a bit of healthy paranoia. Zero-day exploits are invariably harmful, and they're usually difficult to recover from. 
Companies lose millions of dollars every year to damage done by these exploits. And it's not just businesses. Individuals, nonprofits, government agencies, and NGOs are all likely to be targets. The goal may be to cripple hardware, as the U.S. and Israel did with the Stuxnet virus, or to exfiltrate data, as Russian and Chinese operators do, or to hold computer users' data for ransom. There's been a lot of that lately. One key point to consider is this. All software has flaws. Even small, simple applications may have bugs that make it possible for a rogue application to run malware on the computer. Security specialists constantly review code to search for problems, and software engineers patch them. But sometimes the flaws remain dormant for years, and sometimes the process of fixing one vulnerability creates another. So when you hear about a zero-day exploit, consider it to be like a report that describes food that has been contaminated with a deadly toxin. Determine whether the warning applies to an operating system or application that you use, and if it does, take the appropriate measures to protect yourself. In short circuits, how about this equation? Amazon plus Whole Foods equals disruption. Wired Magazine has an insightful account regarding the implications of Amazon's proposed acquisition of Whole Foods. One thing is certain, and that is the fact that this is going to disrupt the grocery industry. Wired cites a recent report from the Food Marketing Institute and Nielsen. That report says, while around a quarter of U.S. households are currently shopping online for groceries, up from 20% three years ago, more than 70% will do so in 10 years. I had no idea. My local Kroger store does offer the option to place an order online and then pick up the order at the store. There are even half a dozen parking spaces reserved for people who do this. But 25% of shoppers? That still seems awfully high. If I buy apples, oranges, a cabbage, strawberries, or bananas, I'd like to select them myself. Is a quarter of the population already willing to allow somebody else to pick their produce? Will nearly three-quarters of us be willing to do that in a decade? Amazon's been trying to figure out how to get into this huge marketplace for years. Amazon Fresh Pickup makes it possible for customers to order groceries online, then pick them up at an Amazon store. As noted, Kroger already offers this service, so does Walmart. But the traditional stores need several hours to prepare the order. Amazon promises 15 minutes. That's even faster than ordering a pizza for home delivery. Whole Foods would give Amazon a good toehold in metro areas. There are more than 400 Whole Foods markets nationwide, but their coverage omits rural areas, and that's where Walmart is king. The Wired article notes last December's launch of Amazon Go, a supermarket with no cashiers. Amazon technology tracks what consumers take out of the store, but the store is open only to Amazon employees right now. Amazon may have intended to roll the concept out more widely by now, but apparently there have been some problems. Some have suggested that this is a ploy to get consumers to pick up Amazon Prime articles that they've ordered instead of having them delivered. But that just doesn't make sense to me. 
They already have a system in place for delivery of packages that doesn't require the customer to drive anywhere to pick it up, delivering packages to Whole Foods in bulk and then paying people to sort them out and handle them again just to hand them over to a customer? Well, that just doesn't make any sense. If you'd like to read the full article, you'll find it on the Wired website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The Communications Act of 1934 defined common carriers in Title II of the legislation. That is what the Federal Communications Commission used to define Internet service, making it essentially like telephone service and other utilities. The concept is that the traffic on the Internet should be treated equally, and that Internet service providers should be prevented from taking any action to give precedence to any provider. The Internet service providers don't like that because many of them also provide content. They would like to give their own services precedence on their own networks and charge other services additional fees just to gain equality. If that seems flawed to you, then you must be in favor of net neutrality. The FCC is now considering rules that would allow ISPs to throttle services or restrict access to them. What's wrong with that, you might ask? It's not really a difficult concept. First, you pay the Internet service provider to provide access to the Internet. Second, you pay services such as Netflix or Hulu or Pandora, or Porn Is Us, fictional as far as I know, to provide the content you want. Third, you expect the services to provide the content you've paid for. And fourth, you expect your ISP to deliver the content you've paid them to deliver. But the FCC is planning to allow the Internet service provider to impede access to services you've paid the ISP to deliver or to charge the content provider a fee to allow its data to flow without restrictions. So you'll get less and pay more. In 2015, the FCC approved Title II net neutrality rules. But under the Trump administration, the head of the FCC, Ajit Pai, wants to overturn that decision in a way that would make it impossible to fix without a literal act of Congress. Net neutrality holds that all traffic on the Internet deserves the same level of priority. The ISPs will say this restricts their ability to manage network traffic. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody questions policies that would restrict non-time-valued traffic, email, for example, while giving precedence to time-valued traffic, such as streaming video or audio. That is simple network management. What net neutrality addresses is throttling of content, blocking content, or giving inappropriate priority to content. It simply means that Internet service providers must treat all traffic fairly. If you use the Internet, these are decisions that will affect your ability to use the services you're paying for. Now would be a really good time to contact the Federal Communications Commission to express your opinion. You can visit the FCC's website and file a comment on FCC Proceeding 17-108, which is entitled Restoring Internet Freedom. The plan here is to restore freedom for ISPs to gouge customers. So if you're a customer who doesn't like being gouged, please speak out. There's a link to Proceeding 17-108 
from the TechBiter Worldwide website. You can also contact your representative or senator, but the FCC is proceeding in a way that would all but eliminate any way to restore net neutrality once it's gone. Not gone, but only on the website. Spare parts. This week, Sony says it has sold more than 60 million PlayStation units worldwide. And this week I have an update on my older daughter's recent medical emergency, along with a lot of gratitude for the Ohio State University Medical Center. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.